Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. I'm Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, University of Minnesota. Before we begin, I just want to give you a heads up. At the bottom of the screen, there's a very sneaky Q&A button there. Please click that, give us questions. We love questions. We are going to incorporate as many questions as possible into our conversation this afternoon. Thank you and welcome for joining us to today's program, Madam Speaker, a book talk with author Susan Page. Susan Page is the bureau chief for the, excuse me, the Washington bureau chief for the USA Today. She's covered 11 presidential campaigns. She's covered seven White House administrations. She's interviewed the last 10 presidents. That is quite a record. Um, she's also best. She's also the author of a terrific book on Barbara Bush, which I highly recommend, and most recently, author of Madam Speaker about Nancy Pelosi. This has been on the New York Times bestseller list and is widely read and and um, and really admired for the insight and the remarkable access. Susan Page is one of my favorite reporters. She's got a nose for the big story and knows how to go and dig out the information she needs to tell it. She's joined today by my good friend and colleague, Catherine Pearson, who's an associate professor at the University of Minnesota in the political science department. Her research focuses on Congress and gender. And Catherine Pearson will be moderating today's conversation. Catherine? Great, Larry, thank you so much. And Susan, thank you so much for joining us. It is really my pleasure to moderate this discussion with Susan Page. My scholarly research focuses on party leadership in Congress and women in politics. And before I got my PhD, I actually worked on Capitol Hill and had a bit of a chance to observe then Representative Pelosi in action in the 1990s. So I've been following Nancy Pelosi's career for a long time, but I learned so much from this incredible book and thoroughly enjoyed it. Indeed, it's impossible to understand congressional politics and American politics over the last two decades without understanding Speaker Pelosi's role in the legislative process and in electoral politics. And it is fascinating to learn about her Baltimore roots, her life before Congress, her family, and other influences on her career. I would highly recommend Madam Speaker to all, and I will start by asking Susan about several topics that she covers in the book and then move on to today's political debates and audience questions. So to start, Speaker Pelosi has represented San Francisco in Congress since 1987, but she learned about politics from her Italian immigrant political family in Baltimore. Please share the influence of her Baltimore roots as you do in the book, and then I'll ask you to share the significance of, her, of San Francisco politics as well. Well, Catherine, it is, uh, it's my great honor to be here. I'm so uh, glad to be uh, at the University of Minnesota in the Hubert Humphrey School. And to be talking with you and with Larry Jacobs, if, if I'm one of his favorite reporters, he is one of my favorite professors. He always brings a smart perspective when I've called him for his help working on a variety of stories uh, over the years. And I look forward to his new book, which comes out next month, on the impact of direct primaries on our democracy, the unintended consequences of moving to direct primaries. That's coming out next month by Oxford University Press. So, you know, the thing about Nancy Pelosi is, I think there are a lot of Americans who think of her as a San Francisco liberal, and she is definitely a San Francisco liberal, but she is also in her heart, a Baltimore Paul. Her father was the legendary Tommy D'Alessandro Jr. with a three-term mayor of Baltimore and a big figure in the days of FDR in Baltimore politics. And her mother also, who was known as Big Nancy, contrasted with her daughter, who was known forever as 
little Nancy was herself a political force of real consequence. So Nancy Pelosi grew up as the youngest daughter in a big family, six older brothers, uh, and a time when politics in big cities like Baltimore was a contact sport. She grew up in a milieu where her father referred to FDR as the boss and where John Kennedy came uh, to visit to do an event with her dad when she was in high school. So definitely these are the forces that taught Pelosi about politics and about power. Great, thank you. Um, before, before Pelosi became Democratic whip in 2001, she had a very active legislative career in Congress that few really know about today. She was a legislative entrepreneur on HIV AIDS, represented her constituency in San Francisco on issues like the conversion of the Presidio. She was very active on human rights in China. She was a member of the Appropriations Committee and she was definitely to the left of her party. And I think some of these things surprise people today. So if you could talk about her early years in Congress and what she did and the challenges she faced and how that prepared her, or maybe it didn't, uh, to be a party leader. Well, as I said, definitely a liberal uh, in the tradition of San Francisco politics. She won, a, she won a special election to get elected to Congress in 1987. It was one of those crazy San Francisco elections with 14 different contenders, many of them representing uh, peculiar third parties. Uh, and she defeated several candidates who had more political experience than she had. She defeated them in that primary, interestingly, by in part by appealing to Republican voters. Her appeal to Republican voters, which was pretty sly, was, you know a Democrat's going to win this seat. I am less offensive to you than these other Democrats. And she won that primary narrowly and has, of course, never been, never again had a serious challenge to her reelection in San Francisco. But her big issue when she got elected was HIV AIDS. And I think it's easy to forget now how in 1987, there was this huge stigma attached to the AIDS issue. And most members of Congress and the president of the United States generally refused even to discuss this public health crisis that was going on. But of course, the center of the AIDS epidemic was in San Francisco. It was the number one issue she had promised voters she would address if they elected her. And she did, she spoke about AIDS during her first remarks on the House floor to the dismay of some of the other members of Congress who were there with her. And she really pursued it in a serious way. One, you know that the AIDS quilt, which we all know about, a big community um, project that has commemorated so many lives lost to AIDS. Well, the first time the backers of the, the, the organizers of the AIDS quilt wanted to spread it on the National Mall. They couldn't get permission from the Reagan administration to do that. And it was Nancy Pelosi, who had only been in Congress a few months, who dragged in officials to her office and spoke to them as though she had a lot of power, which she didn't really have, and arranged a compromise that enabled that AIDS quilt to be unfurled on the National Mall. And from then on, she has had a really excellent relationship with activists for AIDS and HIV AIDS. She's, she, she was a liberal also when it came to the Iraq wars. I mean, look ahead. Nancy Pelosi was the most senior Democratic official to oppose the Iraq war from the start. But this heritage, I think, is sometimes obscured by the fact that now she's in the leadership. And for years, she has been the one making pragmatic deals, taking half a loaf when you couldn't get a whole loaf. And this has put her at odds with today's leading progressives, people like AOC and Ilhan Omar the new breed of women and progressives on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I, that's I, fascinating. I see that with my students who see Pelosi as an institutionalist and not someone who's a liberal fighting the power structure. It, it is it is interesting. Um, and this, you know, her early years were, were a long time ago. She's been in politics. Mm -hmm. um, but sort of thinking about those early years, as I said, I worked on the Hill in the 1990s and she was clearly a, a very active legislator, but she was not someone that people were saying, oh, she's the next Democratic Party leader. Um, so if you could talk about her her rise to the leadership. I mean, she was by the time she started her three-year campaign for whip, um, but sort of what changed from Pelosi, the legislator appropriator to this path to the party leadership? And when did that happen? So Catherine, I'm just interested, you've studied this. So tell me, what was, what was your view of Pelosi 
back then in the 1990s as a staffer looking at her? How did you yeah. how did you view her? And to be clear, I did not work for her. I worked for actually yeah. two different Congresswomen, um, one who had a pretty good relationship with her, one who did not. Um, neither were close to her, um, but she she was viewed as a you know, a serious legislator, someone who was very active, often, you know, on the floor, introducing bills, and then an appropriator, um, but definitely a very liberal San Francisco Democrat. I mean, someone who was um, a member then, she, uh, of the Progressive Caucus, she withdrew that membership um, once she was in the leadership, but, you know, not someone who political scientists would sort of talk about back then as being sort of in the middle of the party, and therefore uh, the most likely to be a party leader, and then also, of course, she was a woman. Um, and party leadership uh, at that time that mainly white and men. Yeah, mainly white men. And when she announced her campaign or when there was, this was before she had announced her campaign for a whip, but when there was some, some speculation brewing that she was gonna challenge the lineup of men who were all prepared to move into the next step in the leadership whenever it was available. Uh, one of the men in the leadership came to her and said that we understand you and the women have some issues you care about you don't need to run for the leadership. Just tell us what those are and we'll take care of them for you. And you can imagine uh, that this did not sit particularly well with Nancy Pelosi and did not dissuade her from running and from in fact, uh, besting, defeating uh, uh, Steny Hoyer, the Congressman from Maryland who thought he was next in line for a whip. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, Catherine, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but I think the fact that she was female was a bigger, hurdle for her getting into the leadership than the fact that she was more liberal than the Democratic caucus as a whole then. Do you think that's true? Yes, I, yes, I do think that's true. Because certainly, even though sort of you think of the speaker as being someone more in the middle, like a Foley or a Gephardt, certainly the leadership reflected the range of ideological diversity within the party. But I think being a woman was a huge impediment back then. You know, I don't, I don't know if everyone remembers, it seems ridiculous today, right? Because now we have uh, a woman as vice president and a woman who has served as chairman of the Federal Reserve. Um, and it seems ridiculous that at the time Pelosi was elected to the leadership, no woman had ever been elected to one of the senior leadership positions in Congress in the whole history of the Congress. And that was, it's not like that was so long ago, but the women who did these groundbreaking roles, and this is actually, these are the kind of women I've been interested in writing books about, women who broke new ground as first lady, as Barbara Bush did, or as uh, a member of Congress, as Nancy Pelosi, or as a journalist, as Barbara Walters did. That's the book I'm working on now. They face the kind of hurdles that I think even a generation later are just hard to imagine. I think that's right. And I think for my students, it's hard to imagine, too. And so that's why, you know, it sort of, sort of takes me by surprise when my liberal students see Pelosi with such skepticism. Yeah, she finds that very frustrating, by the way, when progressives in her caucus think she's not liberal enough, um, she finds that uh, that she does not appreciate that criticism because it's not that she's not as liberal as they are, it's that she is pragmatic. I mean, that's the Baltimore Paul in Nancy Pelosi. She is more interested in getting something done than in taking a very principled stand. You know, for instance, you know, we saw this, I think, just last week when the Senate moved to have a doomed vote on trying to find a path to pass, pass the voting rights bill. Now, Pelosi definitely supports the voting rights bill. She wishes it could be passed. She wishes it could get through the Senate. It, it did get through the House. She would never have brought that bill up to make a point. She does not like to bring bills up if she thinks they're gonna go down. She is a very careful counter. I can't think of a time, I'm sure there's a case of this, but I can't think of, certainly on an important bill that she's brought up and been defeated on the floor because she thinks that is not helpful in getting whatever it is you can get done. But there are progressives who thought that was the right thing to do last week to force uh, two Democratic senators to cast a vote uh, that put them at odds uh, with their colleagues. Yeah, and her vote counting is mentioned throughout the book, whether it's uh, on the floor for an important bill or in her early races for the leadership. Um, you know, even in secret ballot votes, she she had a good idea of how many votes she was going to get from her colleagues. I think another lesson from her parents, uh, in her view, was if someone says something friendly to you, that does not mean they'll vote for you. Uh, you need to get someone to explicitly commit. And then you need to really hold their feet to the fire. 
uh, to make them stand up to that. And I think that's, you know, as you know, these secret ballots that they have for votes for the leadership in the Congress, how many members of Congress have gone in certain they had a majority of votes only to fall short because people would say friendly things, but not in the end, cast their vote for him. Nancy Pelosi takes, when Nancy Pelosi has a hard count, it is a hard count that she can count on. Well, as you know, she when she became whip, she you know almost had it down to the member in terms of the votes that she had counted. Um, and people sort of recognized her legislative skill, but also her fundraising. And her fundraising is sort of a thread that continues throughout. She's raised more money for congressional candidates than any other party leader in history. Um, but yet she didn't want to go the route of being DCCC chair first. She wanted to go straight in to the whip operation. So if you could sort of explain that and then also the role of fundraising and it plays and how it plays into her leadership. You know, Catherine, she's raised $1 billion uh, for congressional races. $1 billion. No one has ever, no congressional leaders ever raised that kind of money before. And she's done it with cultivation of big donors. Now, this is a criticism that some make of Pelosi, that she is very much a part of the system that cultivates big donors and gets big contributions from them. And you see somebody like AOC or Bernie Sanders who has have, have shown us that you can raise huge amounts of money with small donors. Uh, maybe that's a better, in terms of our big, our small D democracy, maybe that's a healthier for our system. That's not been the course that Pelosi has taken. You know, she's a wealthy woman uh, in California, which is a mother load of political contributions. Um, she has uh, deep ties with the tech community and with the Hollywood. Um, and so she, fundraising has definitely been part of her secret of success. In fact, there was an academic study that looked at the race that she won for WHIP. Now, the WHIP doesn't sound like that great a job, only it puts you on the ladder to eventually become speaker. So very important job. And their analysis showed that whether members of Congress were female or male, that did not significantly affect their vote between Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer. But what did affect their vote was if they were from California or Maryland, and there Pelosi had a big advantage because more members from California than Maryland. And two, if they had gotten money from Pelosi or from Hoyer. And of course, Pelosi had a lot more money to give away than Steny Hoyer. Than Steny Hoyer. Those are the two factors, not her gender, that got her on the track to be speaker. Yeah, that is so interesting. And as you know, you know, she was also so good at cultivating these, these relationships. Um, but you also make a point that I think others have observed um, that she's not as good of an orator. Um, in fact, you write, and I'm quoting from your book, she was a master of the inside game of politics. She was never a compelling orator. She was so disciplined that she could seem robotic. How has that um, affected her career or has that just been part of the balance of her strengths and weaknesses? So, you know, Pelosi is a really tough interview. You know, I've interviewed a lot of Paul's. John McCain, love to interview him. You always come away with something really rich and interesting and spontaneous. Uh, Bill Clinton, he's a great interview. Nancy Pelosi, really tough because she doesn't, uh, she wants to say what she wants to say and that's what she's gonna say. And it takes uh, a lot of either effort or serendipitous timing to get her to say something she does not intend to say. I mean, what is the definition of a journalist job? To get you to say something you didn't intend to say, but is true, right? Uh, so Pelosi, Pelosi makes it hard. She's, she's not good at giving a big speech. Uh, she's not particularly good on the Sunday morning uh, talk shows, interview shows. Um, she, but, but she, and so, so it'd be hard for her, say, to run for president with those set of skills. But there is no one in American politics today who is more skilled than Nancy Pelosi at the inside game of drafting legislation, lobbying for legislation, and passing legislation. She is, I think, in the top rank in terms of consequence of American speakers uh, in the history of the United States. Yes, and I think the political scientists would certainly agree. And she has kept, uh, as you note in the book as well, she has kept the party more unified than any other speaker, um, you know, since we've had these party unity scores um, and probably ever. Um, certainly one of the most powerful speakers since uh, Joe Cannon over 100 years ago. Um, you know, Catherine, I think that's, that's because she not only knows how to get power 
she ha wants that she has a purpose for her power she wants to do something with power yes. um so she has been willing to lose power in the interest of getting some big things done so she's she's not only maintained her position at the as a head as the most powerful democratic democrat in the house uh for nearly 20 years but she's used it to push through the affordable care act for instance and to impeach donald trump twice and to push through a pretty unpopular bill in 2008 designed to kind of rescue the american financial system during that meltdown and so those and both that that and the affordable care act were measures that cost democrats in the next election in the election after that but she she saw that as the purpose of gathering power to do something with it and that's why i think you can agree that she, you can like what she does with it or not like it but you can't disagree that she has been a master at that side of the craft of politics and say a little bit more as you do in your book about her critical yet underappreciated role in the passage of the affordable care act <laughs> so uh you know um uh this is i just loved reporting on that part of the book because I found out about this meeting that in the Oval Office that she had with uh, with President Obama. Now the time it's they're trying to pass the Affordable Care Act. They've kind of it's been hard. Uh, the Senate wouldn't move along very fast. And then there was a special election in Massachusetts, and Democrats lost their 60th Senate vote, which meant they couldn't automatically block a filibuster. And there were a lot of Democrats, including Harry Reid then the Senate Democratic leader, and Rahm Emanuel, who was then the chief of staff, the White House chief of staff to Barack Obama, who thought they couldn't do a big bill. They had to do a small bill. It was going to be too hard to do a big bill. So they had a meeting, and that was not Pelosi's view. Pelosi's view was, I can get this through. We can get this through. You don't get many chances to do something this big. Let's not blow it. And she went into a White House meeting and did something I've never heard of any legislative leader ever doing before, not in modern times, to a president of their own party. She said to Obama, you know, so Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff, argued for a small bill. And she said, you know, Mr. President, you can have a small bill, but I won't help you pass it. If you're going to have a small bill, you're going to be on your own. If you want to do a big bill, I'll work for you. This is an effective it's it's just an extraordinary example of hardball politics. Can you imagine? And Ob left Obama with no option. What was Obama going to do? He was not going to get a bill through the House, a small bill, even a pared down bill without Pelosi on his side. He had to go for the big bill. He says that he was he, when I interviewed Obama for the book, he said he had also believed they should go for the big bill. And that may well be true. But Pelosi did not give him the option of going for a small bill. And what Pelosi did then to get the Affordable Care Act through a divided House, get through the version that the Senate was willing to pass, was phenomenal. Yeah, thank you. And let's pivot to that and talk more generally about Speaker Pelosi's role um, in sort of dealing with presidents, whether of her own party <laughs> or the other party. As you note, you know, certainly with President Bush and then definitely with President Trump, I mean, they had a lot of conflict um, and her role with President Obama wasn't necessarily smooth all the time. So if you could talk about each of those uh, presidents and how she sort of negotiated with them and then finally compare it to current President Biden. So her, you know, she, she uh, she's very respectful of presidents. Uh, as you said, she is an institutionalist. Um, but her relationship with George W. Bush was terrible uh, because of the Iraq war. She told me that she thought the Iraq war was the biggest mistake in American history, which is saying a lot, and that George W. Bush was the worst president. So this is, and uh, when, I asked her if her view had mellowed uh, with the passage of time, and she said no. So she had a bad, she had a difficult relationship with, with George W. Bush. And when the financial meltdown came in 2018, in 2008, um, she, the, the two of them had not spoken for months. That tells you how bad the relationship was. All their, their conversations were all through the Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson. So they worked, she worked to rescue his presidency by helping him out during that uh, financial meltdown, but she did not have much regard for him. Her, her relationship with Obama was, she revered him. She uh, 
Um, she admired his political skills. She didn't think he understood Congress very well, uh, but she she recognized that if the Affordable Care Act couldn't have gotten through without her, it also could not have gotten through without him. So I would say they, I, she, I think she just has huge respect and regard for Barack Obama and he and he for her. Um, you know, Trump, what can you say? She, she allowed him to be impeached twice. She had a dyspeptic view of him from their first meeting uh, in, the, in, the, in the White House after he had uh, uh, taken office. Um, uh, he had, you know, it was interesting. I, I interviewed him in uh, um, 2018, uh, not about Pelosi, but about what was going on in politics. And I asked him if he was concerned that um, Democrats were gonna win the House which it looked like they were gonna do and which would make Pelosi speaker. And he said, no, he said, he thought that there were ways he and Nancy could get along. He always called her Nancy, uh, that there were ways in which there were things that he could get done with Democrats in control that he couldn't get done with Republicans in control, including a, uh, a big infrastructure bill that he wanted and never got. Um, now there were people on his staff who thought he was quite wrong in not being more worried about a democratic takeover of the house uh, and he did turn out to be wrong because once once Pelosi, once Democrats won the House and Pelosi became speaker, it, of course, opened the door to endless investigations of President Trump and to impeachment. She viewed President Trump as a danger to American democracy. So now looking at Biden, she has a long relationship with Biden. Um, uh, she also views him, I think, with affection and respect. But I think she's been distressed by some of the missteps President Biden has made. And the, now they've gotten themselves all tangled up with this Build Back Better bill stalled in the Senate. <clears throat> Not at all clear what's gonna happen with that. Thank you, sort of following up on what's going on right now. Um, do you think that getting the House to both pass infrastructure and Build Back Better um, was sort of a bigger coup for Pelosi that, that has been recognized given how she worked with the Progressive Caucus and the moderates and the CBC uh, sort of in getting everyone together? Well, it was an example of her skill, even as the politics becomes, you know, she, has, she can only lose four or five Democratic votes and get things through. This is an impossibly small margin. So the fact that they passed the House, I think, is a sign of her continued skill in difficult circumstances. But I don't think she would view Build Back Better as a victory until they get a final version to the president. And that hasn't happened yet. And do you get the sense that she is actively working behind the scenes with <laughs> uh, Democratic majority leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, and President Biden? Or is she sort of like, OK, the Senate, do your thing? What, what would you guess the answer to that? She's there. <laughs> She's there. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a. I think that's a safe answer. And when uh, when President Biden um, at his news conference said that he was open to breaking up Build Back Better into smaller pieces, it was Pelosi who, at her news conference last week, noted that if you're trying to get it through using the proceed parliamentary procedure known as reconciliation, you have you can't just break it up and push it through. It's more complicated than that. So I'm sure she is playing a really big role in figuring out what it is they can get through the Senate. Great, yeah. Um, one of the chapters that really piqued my interest was about the relationship that she has with the squad. Um, representatives <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and then of course Ilhan Omar from Minnesota uh, representing um, the district where the University of Minnesota is. And so if you could talk a little bit about that, both um, you know the challenges that the squad poses, but then also um, how Pelosi in some ways brought them into the fold. <laughs> So uh, that's so interesting. So I didn't realize that Ilhan Omar represents the University of Minnesota. Isn't that interesting? And so do you ever hear her? Have you ever heard her? Um, I'm sure that gives you uh, opportunity to hear from her more often uh, and in different settings. Does she ever talk about Pelosi? I, I'm trying. Not that I can remember. I mean, she's been at the Humphrey Institute, uh, which, of course, we're, we're being hosted <clears throat> by now, um, but not that I can think of. Well, that that would be interesting because one of the surprises when I was reporting out this book was that Pelosi and Ilhan Omar are pretty close personally. And it goes back to Pelosi's reassuring role when Omar was running uh, the first time for Congress uh, and was, was, had various concerns. And Pelosi was extremely solicitous and helpful. 
they built a real relationship. They have a real friendship, even though there are times they've been crosswise and Ilhan Omar has done things that's given Nancy Pelosi trouble. So I would be really curious the next time she's at the Humphrey Center, if you would ask her about that and let me know what she says. Will do. <clears throat> to to Will go do. into the squad, um, you know, I mentioned that Pelosi is a tough interview, but I got to say the best interview I ever had with her for this book uh, was, <laughs> was, you know, these, these interviews would, I had 10 interviews with her for the book and they would be set up well in advance. Uh, obviously because she's the speaker of the house and has other things to do than talk to me. Um, <clears throat> so one of the interviews I had with her was happened to be right after a big blow up with the squad in the Democratic caucus, like behind closed doors, but loud enough to hear it across Washington. And she came to this uh, interview all steamed up. And so I kept asking her about what had happened at the meeting and what did you think of the squad? And, uh, and she was getting annoyed with me because that's not what she wanted to talk about. And she said, um, I thought you came here to talk about the book. And I said, well, <clears throat> I did, but let me just ask you one last question, which is a reporter's trip. I said, uh, um, do you think the squad appreciates the process involved in making legislation that can pass, the kind of sausage making process. And that set her off because of course, that's exactly what she thinks the squad doesn't understand. That they do not understand what you need to do and the kind of long-term calculations you need to make if you're actually gonna get something done. And I gotta say, she, uh, uh, she said that, she quoted Dave Obey, uh, the former Congressman who uh, had a saying uh, that, some people come to Congress to pose for holy pictures and other people come to Congress to get things done. This was like one of his favorite sayings and Pelosi liked it too. And, and she mimicked, she said, some people come to Congress to, some people are here to pose for holy pictures. And she mimicked, you know, a child posing for holy pictures. This would be her reference to the squad mm -hmm. and other people come here to get things done. That would be a reference to herself. So that was uh, a time when the, when the scheduling of the interview helped me get a more spontaneous reaction from Speaker Pelosi. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Um, Speaker Pelosi has rewritten the script for women in leadership, as we started to talk about earlier. Um, in many ways, her career runs counter to gender stereotypes. She's a fierce partisan. Gender stereotypes suggest that women are more likely to be bipartisan. She really doesn't work across party lines for the most part. She's the most prolific congressional <laughs> fundraiser in history, if we've, as we've mentioned. And so how do you think this will help women in future leadership races? Um, and how do you think more generally uh, gender dynamics have paved the way or hurt her in more recent years? We talked about early years, but how does that affect her today? So Catherine, I've got to say that you know more about this than I do. I know you're working on a book about gendered partisanship. I look forward to reading it when you're done. And here, I want to ask a question to you. One is, is, a, is are the stereotypes of how women lead uh, correct and Pelosi's an outlier? Or does Pelosi show us that the stereotypes about how women lead is itself wrong? I I think the stereotype, I think, I think the situation has changed. I think empirically, you can look at the late 80s, the early 90s, and women really were voting more likely to vote across the aisle, um, particularly Republican women, but women in both parties. But as parties have become stronger um, and party leader and parties determine so much of members' fates, I think members, male and female, have incentives to toe the party line, but because women have to overcome some of these gender stereotypes, that they're not agentic, they're not fierce partisans, um, perhaps some women have worked harder, but that is who Pelosi is. She is a fierce partisan. Um, <laughs> you know, she is a prol prolific fundraiser, so I don't know that she's necessarily trying to overcome a gender stereotype, but trying to do what's necessary to be an effective party leader in today's polarized era. Well, and I wonder to, to the degree to which, and this is a question you could pose for women in journalism or academia or in politics, does the fact that Pelosi basically ignored expectations of how women were supposed to behave uh, in Congress, does that make it easier for any other woman to follow in that path? 
I think that's a great question. And I think probably the answer is yes. And one, it's so interesting. She clearly cares about women's issues. She talks about women's health a lot. She talks in, in the passage of the Affordable Care Act, you know, there was so much about uh, healthcare access for women. Being a woman is no longer a pre-existing condition. But yet, you know, certainly some of her biggest uh, sort of conflicts have been with other Congresswomen. And so um, it is it is sort of the gender dynamics are interesting. Um, there. Um, if, moving forward, um, I know you didn't cover this in your current book, but the paperback edition will. Um, I want to talk about January 6th, which of course fundamentally altered the 117th Congress. In the immediate aftermath of a violent attack on the Capitol, 139 Republican members of the U.S. House uh, voted to object to at least one state's electoral college vote count. So could you share your perspective on how that has affected how the current Congress functions and Pelosi's leadership? Well, it's had a big impact on the current Congress. I mean, I didn't think our partisan divide could get deeper or angrier, and it has. Uh, and it, uh, I don't see, and I don't see an end. It's, I mean, look at the relationship between Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader. You know, the leaders of the two parties in the House often haven't gotten along, but usually they've had a kind of working relationship, uh, but they, these two do not. And they didn't really have a good working relationship before, but once McCarthy has uh, embraced the big lie, the idea that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, um, that has just made them have no relationship at all. Uh, so these two sides have, you know, are for whatever the big problems facing the country, on COVID, on inflation, on climate change. There is nothing going on between the leaders of the two parties when it comes to those issues. And, um, you know, you've got, you've got Democrats in Congress believing that this Republican attitude is a threat, not just, not just to democratic rule, but to democratic rule, not just to the role that Democrats, the party have, but to the future of our democracy that's a pretty heavy thing. I think that when I, I did a piece about this um, marking the one year anniversary of January 6th, and I talked to some historians who likened this to the Civil War, that you have to go back to the Civil War to find a time when our democratic institutions seem to be under such stress. And of course, even with the Civil War, we didn't see people parading through the Capitol carrying a Confederate flag. And do you think that she has handled the January 6th uh, committee um, as well as one could, or could she have done something different um, to make it more bipartisan? So she was very, she very much wanted to have a nonpartisan commission or a bipartisan commission to investigate January 6th. And she actually, after she made a proposal that was kind of favored Democrats, when the Republicans in Congress wouldn't agree to that, she proposed something that was very even, Stephen, even number of members, both sides had subpoena power, and the Republicans turned that down. So I think in fairness, she did went as far as she could go to get a truly bipartisan commission. And, but she still felt, and I interviewed her about this for USA Today, she still felt that it was important, crucial really, to find out what happened on January 6th, who was behind it, um, who financed it, who planned it, uh, and what were they doing now? Because, you know, you do not get the sense that the challenges of January 6th are over now. That's when she set up the select committee that is really has two Republicans on it, but they've kind of defied their own leadership to participate in it. I think she deserves pretty, she's a, she's a fierce partisan and she gives no quarter to Republicans, but I think she has done what she could to try to make this a less partisan investigation. And of course, now they're working as fast as they can, because we assume most likely Republicans will gain control of the House in November. And at that point, this investigation will be over. Catherine, I'd like to tell you about the an interview I did with her uh, that's in the paperback edition of the book, but the interview was after the hardback was out. So this was an interview really for USA Today. Um, and I asked her if I asked her if the rioters had caught her on January 6th, 
would they have killed her? And she said, yes, that was what they were trying to do. And then she said, but they would have had their, a fight on their hands because I'm a, they would have had a battle on their hands because I'm a street fighter. And then she, you know, she wears these stiletto heels. She lifted up one of her stiletto heels and said, besides, I could have used this as a weapon. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that, that speaks volumes. Um, thinking about, well, first, a quick question. What is her relationship like with Liz Cheney? Of course, one of the two Republicans on the select <laughs> committee. So when I was working on the book, I found all these, I saw these parallels between Pelosi and Cheney uh, in that the daughters of big political families, um, fiercely partisan, although in different parties, uh, willing to define, not really rising in the leadership because Cheney had been elected to the leadership, um, didn't really do a lot to cultivate, you know, had kind of a tough exterior. I thought they were sort of alike. And I tried to interview Cheney about this. I, you know, I sent a request into Cheney, um, who I'd interviewed a couple times before and other things, if I could interview her because I saw these parallels and Cheney refused to talk to me about it. <laughs> so Cheney didn't want to maybe encourage these parallels. Um, but, and, and they're, they're politically, they're very different, right? They are, if you look at their partisan voting records, it is 100% different. It's hard to think of an issue on which they would um, hold similar views. But it, when it comes to their uh, attention to democratic institutions and their respect for that, on that they have found common cause. And Liz Cheney has been hugely important to Pelosi's efforts to try to keep this January 6th investigation from being completely partisan. Thank you. And one final question from me before I turn to audience questions. So for the audience, be sure to submit your questions uh, in the Q&A. Um, but thinking about the 2022 midterms um, and the next generation of Democratic leaders, um, has Speaker Pelosi done enough to cultivate the next generation of Democratic leaders, party leaders? Um, and who do you think is in that mix in the next generation? So this is, you know how uh, in uh, like succession, everybody keeps waiting for the old guy to die. Um, well, you know, in politics, it could not die, but retire. They're, you know, politicians are always calculating who next up, where could they be? And the problem that Pelosi has presented for any number of House Democrats is that she's hung on so long. I mean, she's, she's held power for so long that there have been any number of members of the House who finally moved on to other endeavors to the Senate or to running for statewide office on the theory that they just couldn't count on Pelosi to ever kind of voluntarily get out of the way. You know, we think that this is probably her last term uh, in Congress or last term as leader, uh, although that's not a guarantee, that's the general assumption being made. And one of Pelosi's, the subtitle of my book is The Lessons of Power. The number one lesson of power for Nancy Pelosi is one that her father taught her, which is that no one will give you power, you have to seize it. And that is a rule that will apply when Pelosi leaves the scene and a new generation of democratic leaders are elected. Nobody's gonna get handed uh, this job. They're gonna have to fight for it. That said, the most likely, the favorite, uh, the, the, the one we think is the front runner and favored to win uh, the, the opportunity to lead the Democrats in the house when Pelosi leaves is, <clears throat> is Hakeem Jeffries who is a congressman from New York now in the leadership. He would also be a groundbreaker uh, in that he would be the first African-American to serve in such a senior role in the House uh, leadership. But there are some other candidates who are interested in that as well. And so I think the Pelosi lesson would be don't be too sure until you've actually counted your votes and they've been cast in that secret ballot. Great, thank you. And following up with a question from the audience um, about future party leaders, uh, just as Pelosi was more progressive earlier in her career than the average Democrat, so are the squad. Um, do you see any of the squad uh, aspiring to party le leadership positions? Well, they, they could. I mean, certainly progressives do. Uh, the chairman of the, the chair of the House Progressive ca ca uh, Caucus, uh, uh, Congressman um, Jayapal uh, is another person I think who could uh, run for House Democratic leader um, and could be a formidable candidate uh, because the number of 
progressives in the you know the party has moved to the left the democratic party has moved to the left just as the republican party has moved to the right um and so progressive progressives have have a louder voice uh than they had before uh you also have to think about so who's the electorate in this election and the electorate will be the democrats who managed to win in this year's uh midterm elections and if you assume and nothing's guaranteed in politics but history says that it's more moderate members of the house democratic caucus who are at greater risk of losing their seats uh in uh, in a election that favors republicans that means the democratic caucus would be smaller but even more liberal than it is now so a progressive candidate could might well be a very serious contender uh, for the leadership thank you as as you note in the book pelosi does really try to meet with and do a good job for looking looking out for those more moderate democrats um in her caucus but that's not necessarily visible and we have uh, a questioner who writes, um, as a Democrat, I admire a number of Speaker, Speaker Pelosi's accomplishments, but as a Midwestern Democrat, I believe that having essentially uh, someone who can be branded as a limousine liberal um, and uh, a coastal elite uh, hurts Democrats, um, especially as the Midwestern blue wall has all but collapsed. What do you think Pelosi's response would be to this criticism? Uh, well, you know, I think it's, I think it's, you know, we talked before about how much money Pelosi has raised for Democrats. Pelosi has also raised a bunch of money for Republicans because she is the favorite uh, demon, the favorite villain uh, for Republicans and has been for decades. And that's because she's liberal. And I think it's because she's female and because she comes from San Francisco uh, with all the cultural overtones that, that carries. Um, and so there may be ways in which that has been unhelpful to Democrats running in places like Minnesota or my home state of Kansas. Um, you know, you, on, on the other hand, uh, it's, uh, it, you, house races are particular things. And I wonder if house, maybe you would have a smarter view of this, Catherine, than I do, whether who is the speaker or who is the democratic leader affects the outcome of individual house races. Now, maybe it does, because certainly lots of Republicans run lots of ads in individual races that picture Pelosi in the most negative possible ways. Do you think, Catherine, that has an impact on the outcome of those house races? Well, certainly scholarship has shown that uh, over and over again, national politics has really pervaded congressional elections, which used to be local referendums on the incumbent. They have now become nationalized. And so a party tied is going to affect all candidates uh, of that party. You know, at the margins, can candidates do things to insulate themselves from, from say, a Speaker Pelosi or their party by saying, you know, as Jason Crow did, I'm not going to vote for Pelosi for Speaker um, coming from this moderate uh, district, yes, and maybe that helps at the margins, but in a national tide, I don't think distancing oneself from Pelosi or having a more sort of visibly moderate um, party leader is really going to help all that much. And of course, we know that one of the big determinants of the outcome of off-year midterms, like the one we're coming up, is the approval rating of the president. Exactly. When you have a pr president in your own party who is unpopular, we know that hurts House candidates in that party, um, even whether they tried to associate themselves with him or not. I don't know if I think speakers have the same power, but maybe they maybe they do. Maybe it's part of that general that general impression that voters get of, of where a party stands. Yeah, I mean, as you note, in a midterm election, you know, uh, the vast majority of voters actually say it's a referendum on the president, even though the president's mm -hmm. not on the ballot. So I think 2022 will primarily be about Joe Biden and the extent to which he inserts himself, um, Donald Trump. So this is an interesting question um, that is not about Speaker Pelosi, um, but it is, what future role do you envision for Senator Amy Klobuchar, the Supreme Court party leader in the Senate? <laughs> you know, uh, Klobuchar has been interesting and been very active, and she's one of the few uh, members of Congress who has managed to, on several occasions, work across party lines to get something done or to, to push something. So, um, you know, she, she, had, uh, she had kind of a rough patch um, after she ran during her presidential campaign. I mean, a wonderful announcement in the snow, right? Who can forget that? 
Um, but then a rough patch as the campaign went on, some questions about some of her history in Minnesota politics. But I, I see her as someone who's going to, who's got huge potential. And I assume, I always kind of assume that if you run for president once, you'd like to run for president again. Uh, so, because that's been the case with a lot of people who've run for president. So she ran for president once, maybe she'd like to run for president again. She has many years in her career left. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, this is uh, a question coming us coming to us from a real campaign expert, and that is Speaker Pelosi has helped change the face of power in Congress, not only by her leadership position, but also getting more, by getting more women and other people from BIPOC communities to run for office. Did you talk to women that Speaker Pelosi recruited to run for Congress? And can you talk to us about her approach and most effective tactics? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been something she's tried hard to do. Uh, there, I think, were there like 25 members of Congress when she was elected to Congress? Can you imagine uh, the, how small that number was? Um, and she has done a lot to recruit diverse and female candidates for office. And one of the things she says to female candidates, you know, to, historically it's been harder to get women to run than to get men to run for office. And uh, one of the classic things that's happened is that um, po political parties have tried to recruit women to run for office and they say, I'm not qualified, uh, somebody else will do it better. Um, uh, and Pelosi would say that the best training she had to be a member of, to be Speaker of the House, was to run her own house. That having five children, as she did, um, was the best possible training for figuring how to operate in a, a political world and the causes that she cares about most which would she always says children are her primary cause the thing that motivates her in politics um that also relates to the role that she had as a wife and mother so that is one of the arguments that she has made to women to encourage them to run for office and she's also done things like this was early in her career where she would invite if they're trying to recruit a candidate, she doesn't do this, I think, as speaker, but before she was such a power in the leadership, she would invite reluctant women candidates to come spend a day with her, see what it's like being a member of Congress, um, and to make, to, as part of the process of making um, female, to convince more women to actually take the plunge and run. That one other thing I've noticed uh, sort of observing Congress is that Speaker Pelosi has made a huge effort to ensure that more women, more women of color, more people of color more generally are on key committees and key positions. Um, and that that's really something that she's done throughout her career as a leader, whereas previous Democratic leaders really have not done that. Um, if you could comment well, on that. Well, of course, just come tell us what your concerns are, your women, and we'll take care of them for you. That's not, uh, that was, uh, didn't work with Pelosi when she was starting out. And she right. has, I mean, one of the, one of the things that Pelosi has in Congress with Newt Gingrich is when Gingrich became speaker after the 1994 midterms, he really consolidated power in the speakership uh, in a big way, including uh, the power to, um, uh, appoint people to committees and the, the power to instruct committee chairs on what it was they were supposed to do. That is something that Pelosi has uh, continued and she's really consolidated her, her, her power. When we're discussing things like, will the House impeach Trump? There was no need to talk to anybody but Pelosi because that was a decision that was going to be decided by her. And even when she named the first impeachment team, uh, House impeachment prosecutors, um, she didn't even tell the other members of the leadership who they were gonna be until they were about to, she was about to announce the names. That's, you know, that's Catherine, I think that's gonna be something interesting to watch with the next Democratic leader, whether in the next speaker, Republican or Democrat, but among Democrats, I think there may be a move to, to have the speakership be a little less the center of all power disperse power a little more the committees, but we'll see. I am following up on one of our, our questioners earlier um, who actually writes, Pelosi spent some time with me uh, talking about her time as a staffer and political leader and ended it by asking me if I would be ready to run when it was my time. So well, well, did that person run? On that, uh, did, not did that yet. Person run? Not yet, but I expect they will. I'll, I'll keep you posted. Um, <laughs> that's 
That's great. Another questioner writes, by chance, my kids and I met Speaker Pelosi one day, literally in the middle of the street. My kids were elementary aged and she went right into grandmother mode and could not have been kinder to them. Why don't we see this side of her more often? Yeah, I mean, it's true. She doesn't show that side much. I mean, she, when she was in her 70s, she took two of her grandsons to see a Metallica concert at Central Park. You know, that's not a side of Pelosi that you see uh, much either. She has five kids. She has nine grandchildren. She is uh, very close to them. They have a, a family um, uh, message stream uh, that she's very active on. Uh, apparently, quite a few emojis from Nancy Pelosi to her grandchildren. Uh, but it's not, it's not something that she shows uh, in public uh, very often. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, P it's not it has and perhaps that's hurt her that she's not doesn't make herself vulnerable in that way uh on the other hand her style has enabled her to get power and to keep it and to use it so there's that sort of switching gears a questioner asked do you see pelosi caving on the current effort to ban stock trading by members of congress mm. that's a great question because she has a st strong personal view that members should be allowed to trade stocks and she has a uh, her family, her husband trades a lot of stocks. That's sometimes been controversial, but there is a uh, rising concern that members of Congress, not Pelosi, but other members of Congress have abused the information they get in Congress to make stock trades in advance, uh, which sure sounds like insider trading to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is definitely a rising sentiment in Congress to try to do something about this. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be interested to see what she does about that issue going forward, going forward. Um, how do you see the rest of the legislature, the rest of the 117th Congress playing out? Um, if it is indeed uh, Speaker Pelosi's last Congress being Speaker, obviously <laughs> passing Build Be the Build Better Act is very important to her. Sort of what do you see happening um, in the final chapter? Well, I think she thinks they only have <clears throat> a few months, weeks or months left to actually get things done. Because uh, as you know, Catherine, what happens is we get, we, the weather starts to get warm and we will be in the campaign mode uh, and the kind of fierce campaign mode that, uh, you know, like Katie barred the door. Um, so I think she thinks they have a limited amount of time to get things done. I know she'd like to get a version of Build Back Better uh, through the Senate as she is very aware of the parliamentary challenges uh, to doing that because there's almost no chance of overcoming a Senate filibuster, uh, but not impossible. Um, she She's very concerned, I think, about climate change. That would be a part of the Build Back Better Act that she would very much like to see get enacted. But at that point, she will go into the campaign mode she's been in before of trying to protect and elect uh, Democrats. Uh, it looks like this is going to be a, a very tough year to do that. We're, we're watching, Catherine, also for an announcement on her part, uh, you know, the, the California, uh, on February 14th, some people think of that as Valentine's Day. We think of that as the day when people can start to file to get their name uh, in the, on the primaries in California. Uh, and so sometime in that period of, from February 14th to I think March 11th, um, she will need to say whether she's gonna be run for another term uh, in Congress. And the betting is that she will file run again, win, by the way, and after that, possibly resign, prompting a special election, that she won't, uh, in fact, not file again and let that race open up in San Francisco because it wouldn't be helpful in terms of her campaigning and her raising money and, and all that. Um, but either way, so anyway, that's a, that's a little something we're all watching for on the Pelosi front over the next couple of weeks. We will stay tuned. And I'm going to turn the microphone back over to Larry Jacobs, but I just want to thank you so much uh, for all of these insightful answers to your question. And your book is awesome. So thank you. Catherine, thank you so much. And thank you, Catherine. This has been a terrific conversation with Susan Page, who is the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Um, you can see today why Susan Page is one of the most widely read and respected journalist. He's also a best-selling author, uh, most recently of Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Um, and before that, The Matriarch, 
Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty. I highly recommend both books. Um, Susan Page, thank you so much for joining us. This has really been just an extraordinary conversation that uh, many of us have learned from. Thank you. I want to just take a moment to quickly mention upcoming event. Um, we have Glenn Lowry, who is a professor at Brown University and a well-known conservative critic of uh, kind of traditional uh, civil rights legislation. He's challenged um, what is often the conventional view about sources of poverty. Um, for Professor Lowry, he has linked it to uh, the dysfunction and violence in the Black community. He's also challenged affirmative action. Um, he's very smart, very provocative, and quite controversial. Um, he'll be joined by uh, econ professor here at the U, uh, Christopher Phelan. Um, this will be a great conversation. Please check it out February 3rd at noon. It's, uh, it's being brought to us by the um, College of Liberal Arts. Um, and also we are co-sponsoring it, which I'm very proud of. Um, if you enjoyed today's program, you can um, get a recording of it. It will be available uh, as a YouTube broadcast and also as a podcast on all your favorite uh, stations. It'll be up in a day or two. Uh, look for that. Also, I want to just let you know that all these programs are brought to you free and they're open to the public. Of course, we welcome uh, financial support. If you'd like to join our donor circle, please get in touch with us. Once again, Susan Page, thank you so much for this terrific conversation. Hey, Larry, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You all have a good day.